Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Verse 13. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he was pass- as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, pa- uh, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And he reclined at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes, uh, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. That's our text this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that, um, we pray that everyone in this building, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would sense and experience your love today, God. Pray that we would know it. We would know your love. And I, and I pray that it wouldn't necessarily come from a song or from a line in, in the message or even a verse. It would come by your Holy Spirit speaking to somebody's heart, showing them, telling them, making very tangible that you love them. God, I pray that, that we would experience that love today in a real way, like Levi did when he sat with you, Lord, and ate. I pray that when the gospel is taught and preached today, people would follow Jesus like they did in this text. Holy Spirit, I pray you would exegete Jesus Jesus today, that you, Lord, would make Jesus known, that this text would show how beautiful and awesome Jesus really is. Show us Jesus today. Lord, I surrender my mouth to you and my mind to you. That's just kind of all over the place this morning. I pray, God, that you would teach us today, that we would leave today with Jesus on our lips, God and empowered to be on mission for you in this city. For your glory and your fame and your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we saw uh, Jesus healing a paralytic. And not just healing him, but by healing this paralytic, as we saw last week, Jesus was showing that he had power and he had authority over sins. He had a power and authority to forgive sins. Now, traditionally, Messiah was never thought to possess this type of power. Whenever uh, they would talk about Messiah and what he would come to do, never in that was, well, he's going to come to forgive people of their sins. That was never part of the deal, never part of their tradition. It was God alone who forgave sin, as we looked at last week. It was not a power that anyone expected Jesus to have. And remember, Mark is writing to give us the true story of who Jesus really was. This is not a Jesus that's recast by secular relativists who might want to water down what Jesus said or who he claimed to be or like, hey, Jesus is a little too extreme. Let's cut him with a little bit of water and his exclusive claim with a little bit of water. He's just too extreme for us. Let's simmer him down a little bit. But this Jesus in Mark is also not recast by the church either. We're not allowed to recast Jesus as well. We're not allowed to make up a Jesus that backs our political parties or our own self-righteousness. But here we get the raw, real Jesus, what Jesus really came to do and who he really was. Mark also loves recording people's reaction to Jesus. And so Jesus will act and do these miracles and signs and teaching, and Mark always goes, and they were astonished, and their minds were blown or whatever, and they were, they were amazed or they were mad or 
whatever. He always records the reaction of the crowd. He loves to do that as well. And so last week, we've seen when Jesus teaches, their minds are astonished and blown. And when he heals people, they're like, who is this that heals like this? We see last week, for the first time, the scribes thinking in their heart, well, who, who does this guy think he is to forgive somebody's sins? And Jesus, ironically reading their heart, goes, me. And he forgives them and he heals the paralytic. This week is the first time the Pharisees get verbal with their attacks. They start getting verbal with their, well, we don't really agree with what Jesus is doing, and they get verbal with him. So Mark loves to record the reaction. So these two themes run together through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Who Jesus is and how people respond. Who Jesus is and how people respond. In Mark's story of Jesus, Jesus isn't so much who he was when he taught, but who he was as he lived. So it's not so much about what Jesus taught. Mark doesn't record a lot of Jesus' teachings. It just says this. Already five times, we're only a chapter and a half into the book, five times it's been alluded to Jesus' teaching. And Mark doesn't tell us what he teaches. He just basically shows us how Jesus lived. Verse 13, look at verse 13. When he, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Jesus, again, was teaching. This is the fifth time. And instead, Mark really shares, doesn't share what Jesus teaches. Rather, the real story of Jesus is how Jesus lived out and embodied what he taught. How he lived out. What he preached and what he taught, but also what he embodied. Word and deed of Jesus' ministry. And as Jesus is teaching by the sea... He's teaching by the sea, and he sees this tax collector named Levi sitting there. So Levi would have been sitting there probably with boxes or around a booth, like a wooden table with stacks of money all around him, and he was collecting taxes. Now, Jesus walks up to him, looks at him, and says, follow me. Now, to understand the contextual weight of what was going on here, we have to understand what a tax collector was. Levi was a tax collector, but he wasn't a tax baron. He wasn't like the sheriff of Nottingham. He wasn't like that. He was stationed at an intersection of trade routes to collect tolls and customs and taxes on import and export duties. Notice they were by the sea. There was a huge tax on fishing. So when anyone came up, the tax collector was considered by so many people. Everybody in the Jewish community considered a tax collector to be a traitor, a thief, and a sinner. Okay? So whenever somebody saw a tax collector sitting on his little booth on a table, stacks of money anywhere, stopping everybody, asking them what's in their bag. Everyone looked at them as a traitor, a thief, and a sinner by the Jewish community. A traitor because he was a Jew who worked for Rome. So he was a traitor because they were essentially collecting taxes for Rome. They were taxing the Jewish people for Rome. They considered him a thief because he was paid by exploiting his own people. The system of tax gathering meant they could stop anyone going along the road. Anyone. Anyone walking by Levi, he could say, stop, unpack your bag, and start taxing them for every single fish they've had, every single thing they had in their backpack, everything. They taxed them, and if they didn't have enough money to pay the taxes, he would say, we'll offer you a loan at a very high interest rate. So they were extortioners. They were basically got paid to exploit their own people. They were like the mob. Now, if you're from the mob in here, don't be offended by that statement. Jesus likes the mob. (laughs) Now, and they were sinners because they were 
excommunicated from the religious life of Israel. They were not allowed to go to the synagogues. They were not allowed to serve as a judge or a witness in a Jewish court session. And they would be the disgrace of their entire family. Basically, when they signed up to be a tax collector, they were excommunicated. Or they were considered, not even considered Jewish anymore. So they were hated. And Jesus, coming into contact with this type of man, was probably more offensive than when he came into contact with the leper. Because a leper's condition wasn't chosen. You were a leper. You didn't choose to be a leper, but you chose to be a tax collector. This man was a sinner and a cultural outsider by choice. In fact, they had the, the highest bidder in a, in, a, in a region was the tax collector. People would bid and go, if you hire me as a tax collector, I promise you this amount of money. I will tax the people this much. And the highest bidder got the job. So Levi bid really high, and he just took money from people, and they hated him. Now, we might not fully understand this, the weight of this. When we say this, especially in this city, in this context, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. You're like, I live with them. What's the big deal? We don't really understand the weight of it. Imagine it like this. There are a lot of, there are a lot of jobs, and some jobs are harder than other jobs. My dad was a fireman, and everyone loves a fireman. Everyone. So everybody loved my dad, called him a hero, all this stuff. He was really, really fun. I have been a pastor. That's 50-50 normally. Some people either love you or they hate you or they say they love you but they really hate you or whatever. I'm not bitter. And I've worked in a coffee house, which is basically you're like working for junkies. And they could snap on you at any moment. And you've probably done this before. What I love about this city and coffee houses, they're like, they don't care. I mean, you could be junkie and you could snap and they're like, you know what? Leave. Get out of here. But when I was, uh, uh, I worked in the coffee house, like people would snap on me all the time because I made their cappuccino wrong or whatever. So it was kind of 50-50. I've also worked as a high school security guard. Everybody hates you, okay? <laughs> I would roll up on my little four-wheel go-kart to kids and go, hey, how are you doing? They're like, what? what? I didn't do anything, dude. I just want to say hi to you. Dude, get away from me. Everyone thinks that I'm, the, I'm in trouble. Just stay away from me. Don't befriend me. Get out of my face. Like, everybody automatically hates you. Now, in San Francisco, there are probably fewer jobs where you need to have tougher skin than working as like a, a muni bus driver or the parking police or affectionately called the meter mates. Now, when we moved here, the first two months of living here, we got seven parking tickets. Seven. <laughs> now, if you get seven parking tickets, you're kind of driven to hate a little bit. Even though you're like, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I I'm, hate my enemies, I, I'm, I love this city, seven parking tickets kind of get you a little bit over the edge. I've seen people trying to run over those little three-wheel meter maid carts off the road before. Like, they're driving, and I've seen people like trying to push them off the road. That's like where they wear helmets and stuff like that in their cart. I never understood that until I saw them trying to run somebody off the road. Okay, I, I know it's, I know it's, Imagine this, though. Imagine, and, and, and if you've gotten tickets in the city, and I hear this all the time, you've got a budget for tickets, they just get you every single time. And it's not their fault, they're just, it's their job. But imagine, with all the kind of, the way that San Francisco kind of just doesn't really like that division of, of our city. Imagine if the meter maid service was taken over by Canada, okay? Nothing, nothing wrong with Canada, okay? <laughs> but imagine they're taken over by Canada. And the way that, that, that Canada wanted to make money from us was to, was to, was to take over the meter maid service. Like, if we take over parking in, in the city, we'll make a ton of money. So imagine they were, it was Canadian-ran, but 
Americans signed up for it. And they were driving the little go-karts with giant maple leaves on the side of them. And the, way that, and the way that they made money, and the way that they made money was by overcharging you, overcharging you for parking. And it was totally subjective. They would roll up to you and you have like a Saturn. They're like, they're good for $10 over their parking ticket. They roll up to you and you're running like a Mercedes. They're like, you're good for $100 over your parking ticket. And so they would write it. And that's how, that's how that they made their money. Now imagine that. Imagine that's the meter made service all over the city. They were run by a different country. They're not run by this country. They taxed. They, they, they were Americans, but they, they basically just exploited everyone in San Francisco. Imagine that sort of person. That's kind of what it's like to be a tax collector in this time. They were traitors. They were gifted at exploiting their own countrymen. And everybody hated them. And Jesus rolls up to this tax collector who everybody doesn't like. And he doesn't like get mad at him. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't give him a look. He doesn't speak about him under his breath. He looks him in the eye and says, follow me. And Levi left it and followed him. The difference between Levi and the, and the fisherman, the fisherman can go back to fishing. Levi could not go back to tax collecting. He left it and he followed Jesus. Now, we can't overlook the fact that Levi worked for Herod Antipas at this time, who was the earthly king over the province of Israel. And, they, and he thought of himself as the king of the Jews. That's what Herod Antipas said, I am the king of the Jews. And so Jesus rolls up, and there's whole, this whole political power subtext. Jesus rolls up, and he says, follow me. And he leaves all to follow Jesus, who is proclaiming the inbreaking kingdom of God, who will, in, in chapter 8, be called the real, true king of the Jews. So there's all these things going on in the text, but I want to focus on three, what's going on, three things that, that are going on in this text that I, I really want to point out this morning. They are these three things. They're on the screen. The theological implications of this, the, the missional implications of this, and the personal. The theological, what does this teach us about who Jesus is and what he's come to do? The missional, what does this mean for the follower? So what does this mean for me if you follow Jesus? And personal, what does it mean that Jesus came near me? So first, theological. Normally, uh, when you track somebody's success in their career, and they go from nobody, associating with common people, sometimes outright sketchy people, and they move up, attempting tirelessly to become somebody, and they move up the social ladder until they reach a height that they don't even associate with commoners anymore. They don't associate with people that got them to where they are now. They passed through them, they moved on, and there's somebody now. You might know somebody like this. But with Jesus and his ministry, as we've seen so far in the first two chapters, as his, his career goes on, Jesus gets lower. He has gone from a humble, a humble baptism to calling some common fishermen to touching a leper to forgiving a paralytic sins. And here the ministry of Jesus takes it another turn down, which surprises those who follow him and annoys those who do not. He's eating with a tax collector and sinners. This is what John Stott said about Jesus coming near us. It's, he says, Jesus did not stay in the safe immunity of his heaven. Instead, he emptied himself of his glory and humbled himself to serve. 
He actually entered our world. He took our nature. He lived our life. He died our death. He could not have identified with us more closely than he did. It was total identification. Though without any loss of identity, for he, came, he, he became one of us without ceasing to be himself. He became human without ceasing to be God. In this pericope in Mark, this story in Mark, we see the full realization of the incarnation. What did it really mean that Jesus came down on earth? What it means is that God took on flesh and brought his inbreaking kingdom, not just to the religious elite, not to the social elite, or to gather very important people around him. He went to the sinner and he shared a fellowship meal with sinners. And this is what enraged the Pharisees. This is what made the Pharisees really mad. When they saw Jesus eating with sinners, this is what made them mad. See, there was a clear distinction in this time between the righteous and the sinners. Everybody knew it. There was the righteous over here and the sinners, and the Pharisees expected sinners to be destroyed when God came. When the kingdom of God breaks in, the Pharisees thought, well, when the kingdom of God breaks in, God is going to destroy sinners. He's going to wipe them out. God hates sinners. He hates these people. He hates that people. He's going to call down fire, kill, kill. That's exactly what they thought. When God comes, God's going to destroy the sinner. But Jesus did not show the slightest interest in pronouncing judgment upon these irreligious or the morally bankrupt at all. This is what made them so angry. When they looked at Jesus' ministry, there was nothing about it that he condemned the sinner. And that's what they thought his ministry would be about. The Pharisees believed they were the righteous. Their name literally meant the separated ones. The Pharisees, they're separate. They believed that the sinner should be kept at arm's length until disinfected by concrete repentance and the proper ceremonial rites. So I looked at them, have you been this yet? Have you been baptized yet? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet? Have you done this yet? Have you come up to take communion yet? Have you done this? Have you done that? Well, then if you haven't done all of that, you're at arm's length. Stay away from me. But the way Jesus, and the way Jesus had authority, and the way Jesus taught, and when the Pharisees saw Jesus teaching, they probably thought, he's one of us. He's like us. Look at the way he teaches. He teaches like we teach. Look at the way he handles the word. He handles the word like we handle the word. So they probably saw Jesus like them, but Jesus doesn't keep flagrant sinners at arm's length. He shared a meal with them. A meal defined social boundaries in terms of who was approvable and who was not. Sharing a meal with someone meant, I accept you in this time, in this culture. When you shared a meal with somebody, it meant, I accept you. So when Jesus sat and had a meal with them, what he's saying is, I accept these sinners. I, being God in flesh, come down from heaven, accept sinners. And it blew their minds. It made them angry. There's no way. You're supposed to judge them and kill them, not have a meal with them. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. Why is he doing this? And the Pharisees took an attitude of sin from the preventative side. It was avoidance. They were separatists. They looked at sin. They're like, okay, look at sin. Avoid it. Prevent it. Ever even coming near us. They wanted to make 
and enforce rules that would safeguard people from the possibility of becoming impure or immoral. So they made up all these rules and laws. They're like, okay, here's how you stay pure. Here's how you stay where, where you don't get contaminated by sin. This is how you do it. Here's how you safeguard. And they had all these rules set up. So they avoided the sick. They avoided the marginal, the morally loose, the ritually impure, the broken, the sinner, the Pharisees avoided all of them. But Jesus took an attitude of sin from a creative side. Not creative like in the way where he's trying to create new ways to sin. That's you and me. Different. He took an attitude of sin from a creative side. Now let this sink in a bit. The way he saw sin and sinners was he sought to reclaim the impure and the immoral. The way he saw sinners was from a creative side. How do we reach and love and show God's grace to these people? We see it again here, how Jesus comes with a story of a greater power than the power of uncleanness, of sin, death, and decay. Jesus comes with this sort of power. He's not looking at sin going, well, let's avoid it. He looks at sin like, how do we get into that and then transform it? While the Pharisees may have looked down on sinners, Jesus looked for sinners. That was his mission. The inbreaking kingdom of God is more wonderful and more powerful and more redemptive than the storyline of sin. And so Jesus breaks into these people's lives and he has a meal with them. Now, it's unclear in the text. Some people, no one really knows where to decide. Either Jesus invited them over his house to eat a meal or he went over their house to eat a meal. Either way, he's sharing a meal with them. He's having, and that you would share food, and everyone's eating out of the same bowl. You were like becoming one with them, in fellowship with them, saying, I accept you, and we're the same. Everyone saw these people as sinners. Everyone did. The Pharisees saw them as sinners. Mark, the author of this book, saw them as sinners because he calls them sinners. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Even Jesus saw these people as sinners. Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come to call, I'm here to eat with sinners. Everyone saw these people as flagrant sinners, but the Pharisees saw it under judgment. Pharisees saw sinners and like judge them, destroy them, avoid them. God eventually kill them, wipe them out. But Jesus saw it under forgiveness and healing. He saw a sinner and saw forgiveness, healing, wounds that need to be closed up, a heart that needs to be mended. And by eating with these sinners, Jesus gave them a concrete sign of God's loving acceptance. He was eating with them and he was showing them in a very real way, God loves you. Now it's one thing to eat with someone or to witness to somebody on the condition that they change their lives or based on the condition where everyone knows you're only with them to try to convert them to God. So you're sitting with somebody, you're sitting with a prostitute, you're sitting with this, some horrible sinner, and all your friends are looking and are like, oh, I'm meeting with them because I, I, want, I want them to turn to God. Like, oh, okay, we get that, we get that. But it's quite another thing to treat them as if they were in some way respectable, acceptable people whom God loves as much as the righteous who need no repentance. It creates religious confusion. So no one can distinguish the righteous from the unrighteous. This is what makes this story so scandalous. 
By Jesus eating with these people, he is showing that sinners do not need to do something before they become worthy recipients of God's love. This is what made the Pharisees angry and cry out scandal. This is wrong. They don't have to get, Jesus is saying to these these people, you don't have to get your life together and then hand it over and see if God will accept your life. There are so many people that I've met like that. I will go to church. I will do that once. I will start following God once I get my life together, my act together, so I have something to give to God. Jesus is saying, no, that's not it. You become worthy by responding to the call of Jesus. That's it. That's scandalous. The scandal of this story is that Jesus doesn't make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. He doesn't go, listen, you better repent before I love you. That's the precondition of my love for you. If you want me to accept you, get right. Jesus loves, he accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. Now, I know this sounds like typical San Francisco theology where Jesus loves everyone and accepts everyone and doesn't have beef with anyone, and you're okay, and I'm okay, and it's all good. But this is the text. This is why everyone, this is why eventually Jesus is sent to the cross. Like, listen, you can't be religious. You can't be saying that you're from God and eat with these people. You can't forgive that person. You can't touch that woman. You can't say to that girl, go and sin no more. She's a prostitute. What are you thinking? You have to die. You have to die. We have to shut him up. He's ruining everything. Remember what Jesus said to these Pharisees. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus knows that these people are sick, but he's a physician. At the simplest level, the job of of a physician is twofold, to diagnose and, if at all possible, to cure. Diagnose and to cure. First of all, there's no point in a doctor only keeping company with healthy people. That is absolutely absurd and probably against some law or something. Like, I'm a doctor, but I only see well people. It's like that doctor from... 30 Rock or something. Like, I only see well people. I, I, don't, I don't see anyone that's really, you're really sick. Okay, go, you have to go somewhere else. It's not, it doesn't work for me here. No. A doctor must associate with sick people. And why did this good doctor draw near to these sinners? To mend what has been torn and to heal what has been broken, to soothe what has been wounded, to cure and to make whole. That's why Jesus drew near to these sinners. Now, what, what does this mean for like for those that follow Jesus, especially in a city in an area like this. For those that follow Jesus, what does it mean for us to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because quite honestly, we live all, we, we, we are them. I mean, this, everyone in the whole world knows about San Francisco. I mean, that is the, the place where they all go and they all congregate and they're all there. What does it mean, like, mean for us? Look at what Jesus said. I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. Discipleship in Mark's gospel is basically if it's true of Jesus, then it's true of his followers. If Jesus does this, then we do this. That's why he calls people always to follow him. Follow me and do as I do. What about the follower of Jesus? How should we respond to this passage regarding the mission of God? What does it mean for us to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when Jesus ate with sinners, he was not condoning sinful lifestyles. Rather, 
By eating with them, he attests that these people and their lifestyles can be transformed. Not that they will be transformed, but they can be transformed. As followers of Jesus, we believe in the power of God. The power of God to change. The power of God to transform. Paul the Apostle goes far as to say in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God, the gospel is the power of God. It could change an entire city. We believe that the power of God and the story of God is bigger than the story of sin and even the story of this city. You see, in Mark's gospel, Jesus does not fear being contaminated by lepers. He does not fear being contaminated by sinners. But instead, he contaminates them with God's grace and power. You see the difference there? He's like, oh, if I hang out with these people, I will be contaminated by sin. Jesus is like, no, if I hang out with them, I will contaminate them with God's love, God's grace, and God's power. That is the narrative of this gospel. Jesus passes peace and he perpetuates purity. He moves it forward by the power of God and the exousia, the authority of God. To Jesus, holiness is not something that needs to be safeguarded as much as holiness is God's transforming power, which can turn a tax collector into a disciple. I've heard so many stories of Christians moving to San Francisco, and I heard this way before we moved here, and I keep hearing it even to today. Christians, people that follow Jesus, Wherever you lived, all over this, the, the, the country, the world, whatever, they would come to San Francisco, and within a short time, they would compromise. They would fall away from becoming a, a committed follower of Jesus. They would, their morals would get more loose, and their theology would, would fall away. And, and there's probably a million reasons why this happens. And there's probably that story just multiplied in this room. But it doesn't have to be that way. The city will change you but you should also change the city. This city is not more powerful than the gospel. The gospel thrives in environments like this. In first century Rome, a writer wrote this about the church after observing the church. Christians in Rome, okay, in Rome. There's been a lot of new stuff coming out about Rome on, on television and movies and stuff, how vile that place was. This is what it was said. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They marry and have children, but do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with all, but their bed, but not their bed with all. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are short of everything, and yet have plenty of all things. My prayer this week has been that, the, well, actually for two years, is that the church in San Francisco would be this, that people would know that we love this city and that we love and believe in the power of God. As a community, we must bring Jesus to people, not simply people to Jesus. I read this story this week while reading, and I have to share it with you. I mean, it's just, it was a really good story, and I want to share it with you. It's, I'll just read it to you. It's a story about a, a pastor who's, who's a speaker and an author. His name is Tony Campolo, and he was flying to Honolulu, and this is what he said. He was unable to sleep when he flew in, so he ventured into an all-night diner where he overheard a group of prostitutes talking. One mentioned to her friends that the, in the next day, that the next day was her 39th birthday. Another replied scornfully, so what do you want, a birthday party? And the girl retreated into her defensive shell and said, well, I've never had one my whole life. Why should I expect one now? It struck Campolo 
that there would, it would be a good idea to conspire with the owner of the diner and throw her a surprise party the next night. The cake was baked, all was prepared. The cries of happy birthday from her small group of friends and this stranger left her stunned. She was shocked that anyone would go this, to this much trouble just for her. She asked if she could take the cake home and then left with her prize. And when she left, Compolo offered to pray. And he prayed for her salvation and her life to change and for God to be good to her. And the prayer startled the owner of the diner who asked antagonistically, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And he responded that he belonged to a church that threw birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. What does it look like for the church, for the followers of Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners? It looks like this, eating and befriending people not like us, not like you. Believing in the power of God to transform. Believing in the power of God that the power of God moves forward. And lastly, I want to close with what this means to us personally. Who's righteous in this passage? I mean, if you read this passage, who's righteous here? Ironically, and Mark loves irony when he writes, ironically, nobody's righteous in this passage. The Pharisees are so self-righteous that they that they proclaimed the righteousness, by proclaiming the righteous, they're missing the kingdom of God. Like, we're so righteous that when God comes, they're not, God's not righteous enough for them. I mean, how's that for irony? Messiah comes, and they miss him because they think they're too good for Messiah. And here's the point of the entire passage. Everyone is sick. We're all sick. Every one of us. The sinner who never thinks God, is, God could possibly have anything to do with them on a real personal level, that person is sick. And the self-righteous who thinks that if God does really come into my world, he better meet all my moral standards and fit into my box and share all my personal convictions, and if he's not a fan of my nonprofits, I'm out. You're sick too. We're all sick. We all need a physician. Christian, you're sick. Sinner, you're sick. We need Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He draws near and he shares a meal with them. Other religions and faiths are a result of of humans searching for the divine. Every other religion is a human searching for the divine. Man's search for God. Christianity presents itself as God's search for humanity. Even those the world deems that are the most unworthy. The ones that are like, well, they're poor and they're uneducated and all this... God goes to them. Christianity is a story where God searches for us. In this fallen, broken, damned world, he becomes a human, one of us, and identifies with us. Remember a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus stood in line with sinners to be baptized by John the Baptist. He's not a sinner. He's without sin, but he identifies with us. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, actually calls them into his company. He identifies with sinners so completely that in the extreme, he takes their place, and he dies my death, and he rises again that I would have life. Look at this quote. While we look for him among the priests, he's among the sinners. While we look for him among the free, he is a prisoner. While we look for him in glory, he is bleeding on the cross. The depth of the wrath of God on earth 
is manifested, as Romans says, as God giving us up to our sin and rebellion and self-righteousness. If you're in here like, I don't want anything to do with God, he doesn't fit into my life, he doesn't fit into my world, or he's not good enough for me, or you know what, I'm not gonna give up my sin. I, you know what, I, I don't want anything to do with him. I love what I love too much. The Bible says that God gives us over to our desires. That is like the wrath of God manifested on earth. He gives you what you really want. But that's not the last word. The gospel of the cross declares that the depth of the love of God, even while we were in rebellion and in sin and rejecting him and messed up and are sick, Jesus has come to rescue us and to take the weight of our sin upon himself on the cross. That is the rest of the story. The love of God is not arbitrary, it's not flippant, it's not capricious, it's concrete, it's real, it's tangible and unwavering in power, and he has shown us his love through identifying with us even unto dying the death that we all deserve. And the Bible says that because of this love that God has for us, it draws us to repentance. It's not that repentance draws the love of God, the love of God draws us to repentance. And we respond by following Jesus. That's how we respond. That's how they responded. When, he, when Jesus walked up to, to Levi, he said, follow me, and he followed him. Jesus eats with these people, identifies with us, and he's, he comes near us that we could know in a very real way his love for us, and his love is very, very attractive. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your love. I mean, we can't, I, there's not a million sermons that can even capture your love. There's not a million songs that could plump the, plump the depths of your love, God. You love us. As we pray at the very beginning, I pray, God, right now that you would show us that love. That you would, it would be real to us. That for in here, we, we don't feel deserving of your grace and your love. I pray that everyone here would be free from that self-righteous feeling as though they have to do something to get God. Thank you that you came near us. I pray the gospel would humble us, God, to where we see this city as we're not better than anybody else in this city at all. We all need you, Jesus. We pray you would draw us into worship and apply this to our hearts in Jesus' name, amen.